Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. It's January 2021, and it's still not safe to travel in groups to Civil War sites. I missed going to Gettysburg last summer for the first time in many years. But this week I was able to go there vicariously, looking at the beautiful photographs and reading the little-known stories of a part of the battlefield that most visitors don't even know they are seeing. The book that took me there was Bullets and Bandages, the aid stations and field hospitals at Gettysburg. And we'll talk with the author, James Gindelsberger, tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Bullock. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from the Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters Pandemic Annex on Oxford Road in Greenville, North Carolina, not too far from East Carolina University, but not representing the university, not speaking for them or for anyone, just for myself. And my guests will, of course, do the same as we always do here at Civil War Talk Radio. Well, it is 2021. It's January, second show of the new year. Happy New Year to all. Uh, The pandemic still rages, but one of the minor... uh, positive side effects, I guess you'd call it, is that for the last month and a half, we've had our two grown daughters back home since they could do their jobs or their medical studies just as easily from here as in a lonely apartment, and it would be cheaper and more mentally healthy and more wonderful, of course, for the parents to have them around, and we all got tested before we got together, too. So... uh, this has worked out, uh, in, in some ways it's been a, a pleasant break, even as real life all around has been so strange for us. Uh, 
Before going into any other commentary on local matters, I want to recognize a, a colleague in the field, uh, Gina Mihalik, the publicity director at University of North Carolina Press, uh, has recently retired. She let me know about this at the end of last semester. Uh, over the years, she has worked to send numerous authors and their books to Civil War Talk Radio. Uh, UNC Press is the premier Civil War publishing uh, academic press. Uh, I guess the folks at LSU Press would, would put up an argument, but it's certainly at the very top of the list. So over the years, you and I have gotten to listen to some really wonderful authors with UNC Press books, and Gina's really made that possible all this time, and I want to wish her a long and happy retirement and look forward to working with her successor. So today is January 20th. It's Inauguration Day. Uh, as anyone listening to the show knows, Inauguration Day in 1861 featured a strong military presence in Washington, D.C., the fear of violence from insurrectionary forces, a nation divided, a president calling for unity and peace, saying we are not enemies but friends, we must not be enemies. And here in 2021, we're back in the same boat. From a historian's point of view, I suppose I could be glad it makes it easier to understand how it felt in 1861 and easier to teach, but I'm not happy. I wouldn't take the trade-off if I had the choice. I'd much prefer having to imagine circumstances like that than to have to uh, live through it, as we are all doing. Uh, well, we can only hope, of course, that the denouement is different, that uh, the call for peace and unity is heated, and we don't lead to the kind of violence that followed Lincoln's inauguration. Let me... Uh, say a quick thank you to all of you listening who took time to send me your thoughts on electronic readers, on Kindles and Nooks and the other devices that people use. I asked about that last week and got a large amount of really helpful advice. Uh, things that I had not thought about considering were brought to my attention. It's been extremely helpful. And what really struck me was how enthusiastic everyone was who responded uh, nobody wrote to say, oh, I, I bought one, I tried it, I didn't like it, it's not worth the money. Everyone who tried it said, uh, it'll change your reading habits, which is a little frightening. I look around and see a thousand books or more in the room, and I'm not sure if I, I'm ready to change all that, but uh, uh, I, I will. I will certainly try one of these devices sooner rather than later and uh, let you know how that works out. Here on campus, meanwhile, it's also the uh, second day of the spring semester. Uh, it's not really spring, it's middle of winter, but uh, we call it the spring semester. It started on Tuesday, today is Wednesday. Normally, campus would be filled with students. There's a handful on campus. Most are taking their courses online. I'm teaching my courses online, and uh, uh, we're, we're all... Uh, learning that way. I've asked all 50 students in my military history course to set up a brief one-on-one -on -one meeting with me online so I can get to 
see them, and I found doing that really helps me with teaching in the the virtual environment. If I at least had a conversation with each student, and I, I hope it helps them. Uh, We'll see if it has any impact on how the course goes. The schedule is out for Civil War Talk Radio. It went up today, thanks to Mark Gaffney, on our Facebook page, which he maintains. Uh, it only went up today instead of last week because I was slow in getting it to him as I finished up the last, uh, putting the last touches on it. You can find out from www.impedimentsofwar.org or the Impediments of War Facebook page. But I will tell you, since I've got your ear right now, that next week Ron Coddington will be our guest as he comes back to the show. He, of course, does these books filled with beautiful portraits of uh, Civil War officers or Civil War navies, naval officers in a previous book. Uh, This one is called Faces of Civil War Nurses. Uh, In February, David Conan Conan, I'll have to get the pronunciation right before he gets here, brings us a story about which I knew nothing called Iowa Confederates in the Civil War. Turns out there were some, and we'll find out who they were and why. On February 10th, we'll do a show related to Abraham Lincoln in uh, recognition of his birthday. We'll have Shannon Brown to talk about the Lincoln Funeral Train Project, uh, possibly another guest as well. We shall see. On the 17th, Brian Taylor's new book is called Fighting for Citizenship, Black Northerners and the Debate Over Military Service in the Civil War. And then on the 24th, a book that has been highly recommended by several people to me. It's uh, the timely story of what happens when a former president is put on trial for treason or might be whether he ought to be or not. The book is called Secession on Trial, The Treason Prosecution of Jefferson Davis. It's by Cynthia Nicoletti, and she'll be our guest. On March 3rd, another book that's getting a fair amount of buzz, A Holy Baptism of Fire and Blood, The Bible and the American Civil War by James P. Byrd. That'll be our topic. Two more, and then I'll move forward. On the 10th of March, Leanna Keith has written, When It Was Grand, A Radical Republican History of the Civil War. And finally, on the 17th, Brian Jordan returns to the show. He's been here before. A new book that I haven't even seen yet, but just knowing uh, that he's writing it and what it's about, that it's going to be good. It's called A Thousand May Fall, Life, Death, and Survival in the Union Army. So lots of good stuff. You can find out about it online. You can also go to the website and contribute to the Civil War Talk Radio book and e-reader and uh, feeding the hungry kids at home fund. I I shouldn't say that. They're 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 uh, adults and their hunger has nothing to do with uh, the funds you send. They have plenty plenty to eat. Uh, the funds that you donate are not tax deductible. Don't try to get away with that and uh, as always thank you to everyone who has contributed uh, over the past year and at the beginning of this year thank you all for your financial support your moral support with the kind words many of you send in your informational support uh, describing your civil war travels for those uh, when we can't go it's good to read about a few of you who found a way to get away 
uh, your input on the e-readers, and your political commentary. I've had some very good ongoing correspondences with people uh, with whom I don't agree politically, but we share a common bond over Civil War history, and I look forward to continuing those writings as well. Well, tonight we have as our guest James Grindelsberger. He is the author of Bullets and Bandages, The Aid Stations and Field Hospitals at Gettysburg. And it is, uh, well, he, he'll tell us about it, as I will, too. Uh, let's talk to him. Mr. Gindelsberger, are you there? I am here, Jerry. Thank you. Well, welcome to the show. I will call you Jim, if I may, and you can call me Jerry. You certainly you may. With with all the syllables we put together, we'll save a lot of time. Um, <laughs> yeah, we've got a pretty well cornered market on that. <laughs> so, uh, this where did you get the idea for putting together what's essentially a guidebook, uh, uh, a, a book that maps out where uh, all the hospitals and aid stations were at Gettysburg? Uh, I mean, most of us oh. don't even think about that. What what made you think this would be a good topic? Quite frankly, I hadn't given it a whole lot of thought either <clears throat> until this all started. Uh, the idea actually came from my wife, uh, Suzanne. Uh, we go to Gettysburg oh, half a dozen times a year, uh, maybe for the last 25 or 30 years. And on uh, one of our trips, she just happened to mention kind of offhandedly that she thought it would be a good idea to do a book about field hospitals, which kind of caught me by surprise, but I thought it was a good idea. And I said, absolutely, I'll, I'll help you as much as I can with the research. So we started on it, and uh, it turned into a much bigger project than we anticipated. I, I didn't have any idea there were this many hospitals on the battlefield. And uh, it grew to the point where uh, she got concerned about how it was interfering with some of the other projects she was working on, and she was about ready to abandon the whole idea. And I, I said, well, you know, we've really done an awful lot of work on this. It's a shame to drop it. Uh, would you mind if I took it over? And she certainly was in favor of that. She uh, was mostly more interested in doing the research anyway than the actual writing. So I took it over from there, and uh, it just uh, it just grew from that point. And uh, finally, was able to uh, uh, get everything put together and organize our notes, which took almost as much time to do the research if you see how I take my notes, and uh, the rest is history. Now, you said you didn't realize how many hospitals and aid stations there were. Uh, I would guess most listeners wouldn't know that either. Are we talking about half a dozen? Uh, well, I was figuring, and well, I never really thought about it a whole lot, as you mentioned mm -hmm. earlier, most people don't, uh, but when she mentioned it to me, I thought, well, we're probably looking at a couple dozen, maybe, right. and it turned out there were about 225 or so of them, so uh, you can imagine how how um, surprised we were when the, the further along we got with it, the more we, we were gathering. Now, you define, at the beginning of the book, you define what you mean by a hospital or aid station. These aren't, you know, formal buildings, necessarily. Uh, what no, what, make, no, what qualifies weren't. as a hospital? Well... If you ask 10 people, you'll probably get 10 different answers. So I'll give you what mm -hmm. my criteria were, um, and they're very arbitrary. Uh, one of the obvious mm -hmm. ones, if, did a regiment set it up or did a division, division set it up, uh, that automatically was obviously going to be a hospital. And after that, it got a little bit murky. I, I, I assumed that if there was a doctor there, 
it would be at least an aid station, maybe a, a hospital as well. And uh, then it went even murkier, and uh, I decided if there were more than uh, a, a handful of soldiers there, I would call it a, an aid station or a hospital. And and then finally, if if there was only one soldier there or one officer, um, if it had an interesting story with it, I included it as well. So arbitrarily um, chosen, and as I say, the, there's a good argument against what I chose, and Anybody that wants to uh, uh, do something similar to this would certainly have their own definition. So these are all places where soldiers were treated for wounds uh, suffered during the battle. In raw numbers, what are we talking about for casualties? Oh, there are about 51,000 casualties total, and I would say 20,000 of those or so, 21,000 were were uh, left behind after the armies left. So these so people... Put into a, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. If you put that into a town the size of Gettysburg, you can see the the enormity of the whole situation. Yeah, you've just got a couple thousand civilians and all these right. tens of thousands of wounded. Uh, so the, the armies themselves, you said some of the hospitals are set up by regiments or divisions was was there a can you talk a little bit about how how the armies set themselves up to treat the wounded at this battle uh sure um mostly it was done by the uh the surgeons that were involved with that regiment or division and they would pick a spot that had a number of positive attributes it would they would like it to be somewhat close to the battlefield itself so they could get you know, the, the wounded there quickly, but not so close that they would still be in danger. So that was kind of a, a major factor involved. Um, farms were very popular because they had, generally they had streams going through there, so they had water, um, a lot of straw for bedding, uh, and space. Uh, if, if the farmhouse was filled up and the barn was filled up and all the other outbuildings were filled up, they just fell back onto the the barnyard itself, um, like at the George Spangler farm, for instance. Uh, sanitary, of course, uh, was not a factor at that point, or sanitation was not a factor at that point, because nobody really knew much about infections. So um, wherever there was room, basically, but farms were very popular um, for those reasons. And, and houses, of course, were mostly in town, so they just happened to be uh, expedient. Now, you mentioned the the issue of sanitation. What we'll do is take a short break. I want to come back and ask about the treatment that soldiers got at these places. But first, sure. we'll take uh, a little bit of time away uh, and come back in just a moment to talk more with our guest tonight, James Gindelsberger. He's the author of Bullets and Bandages, The Aid Stations and Field Hospitals at Gettysburg. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at VoiceAmericaTRN. 
Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Jim Gindelsperger. He is the author of Bullets and Bandages, the Aid Stations and Field Hospitals at Gettysburg. The uh, in, in the first segment, we talked about what it means to be a aid station or field hospital. These are not, um, you know, a big uh, brick building with nurses and patients, a big building full of sick people, as they would say on the movie Airplane. Rather, it is, uh, as Jim, as you said, a farm, uh, a house, any place where you could find a flat stretch of ground to lay someone down and perhaps perform operations. Um, The treatment that soldiers got here was, was limited. Again, you don't have, you know, rows of beds or anything. Uh, What, what, what could doctors do? in terms of battlefield medicine? Well, there was a a series of steps um, that were set up um, by Jonathan Letterman, of course. Uh, The first first thing would happen, again, this is very formally set up, and it didn't always work this way, but uh, if a soldier could get to uh, an aid station or a dressing station, which was the first line of care, it was basically first aid. Uh, Nothing was done there more than uh, they would apply a dressing or something like that. Um, they would give the, the wounded person some morphine for pain if they had it. Generally, they didn't. Uh, they would give them whiskey to take care of the potential for shock. And then they would either uh, send them back to the battle or move them on to a, a what would be a, a field hospital where there was actually uh, surgeons available and, and, and all of that. Um, at that field hospital, which, again, as I mentioned earlier, was quite often just a, a barn or a, a tent or an open field sometimes even, uh, they would be triaged. Um, same kind of triage is done today, actually. Um, if there was a chest wound or an abdominal wound, those were generally considered mortal, and treatment just consisted of uh, keeping them as comfortable as they possibly could until... Um, they either got better on their own or they died. Um, for those that needed surgery, and most of them did, um, they would give laudanum. Um, if there was no laudanum, uh, brandy, again, became a, a substitute. The mm-hmm. wound would be probed. Uh, the probing was done usually with 
uh, a real real probe or even the surgeon's finger, uh, and there's usually be very little sanitation in between um, these surgeries. I mean, they just wipe their hands on their apron and and go on from there without washing their hands. Or bandages were reused, particularly uh, uh, later in the war. But at Gettysburg, that was not uncommon. Um, they would do the uh, the uh, surgery with with uh, anesthesia. On, uh, the, the the old biting the bullet thing was pretty much a Hollywood uh, phenomenon uh, mm-hmm. at Gettysburg. Um, they would use chloroform, preferably, because of it. Uh, it was didn't take as much as ether. Uh, didn't wasn't. Uh, didn't take as long to, to take effect. It would mm-hmm. uh, not catch fire as easily, so they would use chloroform or ether, and then go on through the the procedure of, of doing the uh, the treatment or the uh, amputation, which was seventy five percent of surgeries generally included amputation because uh, most of the wounds were from a mini ball that, as you know, just ripped everything apart. There was not much chance mm-hmm. to save a limb when it when it uh, was hit by that. Um, when we're talking about sanitation, the, the, the surgeon would just wipe the scalpel off between operations on a, on a, a rag or uh, his, his pant leg or wherever it happened to be handy. It would, um, again, they would, uh, if they used any water, they would re- continue to use it. They wouldn't uh, just use it once. It would be used until it was so disgusting, I guess they'd dump it out and get yeah. more. When they amputated the limbs, they would just leave them lay where they fell until the pile got so high that they had to move it around it to, to get to where they needed to be. So somebody would take it away then and, and dump it and wait till the next pile grew up. So the whole process was pretty pretty primitive compared to what we do today, but uh, surprisingly it was uh, efficient. It, it did work. Uh, most of the uh, most of the deaths, of course, came as we know from infections and gangrene and and illnesses and so on. But uh, the treatment was rudimentary, but it it was just what they had. So, and and again, the facilities you're just doing this in someone's front room in their parlor or right. in a barn or a, just a wooded area in some cases. The uh, the the book you've written about this it's sort of ironic for such a, a grim topic is a physically beautiful book it's uh, just Thank you. uh you know the the it's there's a color photograph of every one of these sites and you've you've organized it as a guidebook so that there are i think it's 15 chapters each covers a different part of the battlefield including as far away as places like uh, Hanover and and there's a map with the the numbers uh, sh- showing where each site is, and then keyed to the photograph and a story or two about each of these places. And it just is is uh, it, you know, I, I'm anxious to go back. When I go back, I'll certainly take this book with me. Uh, you said you you go there m- numerous times a year, so I'm guessing you don't live right. too far from Gettysburg. Is that We're right? We're about three hours away. Okay, so it, it's it's a manageable. Trip. Yes. Um, In fact, we've done it as a day trip, and, and uh, for book signings and things like that, that we had to get back that same day. It wasn't wasn't all that difficult. You know, our, our listeners in the UK are, are, are 
consumed with envy uh, for our <laughs> listeners on the West Coast, for that matter, uh, to be that close to Gettysburg, make a day trip and, and just check it out and go home again and sleep in one's own bed. Uh, but this book is really organized as, as a... Uh, you know, as a guidebook, and as I was reading it, like I said in the introduction, I felt uh, I was walking along Washington, and I'm looking at the pictures, and I'm saying, I remember that building. I know that building. I've walked past that building mm-hmm. a dozen times. Uh, the other ones, I've been in that building. There's the uh, the, the Shriver House, or there's the Dobbin House. Yeah. I've been in uh, those places. So to anyone who's been to Gettysburg, you'll really like this. And if you've never been to Gettysburg, you'll really, I think, like this as well for a chance to uh, see this. How did you know that – how did you find which places were uh, hospitals or aid stations? Because, again, many people who go there, including myself, have walked by some of these buildings and maybe glance at the plaque – you know, it may have had one of those Civil War structure plaques on it that indicates it was here in 1863, but it doesn't say this place was a hospital. Uh, how did you find out? Well, we had a, um, a myriad of ways, really. It, it, and you've done research, so you know, you kind of just go where it takes you. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of it was word of mouth, just talking to people there. Uh, and the people of Gettysburg were just fantastic about about this whole project, when they found out what we were what we were doing, they uh, volunteered information that needed, we never would have uncovered on our own, and directed us to other people. Um, but the the initial work, the initial part of it, I think, was uh, we we purchased Greg Coco's book, which is kind of the bible of all uh, Civil War hospital books, uh, Vast Sea of Misery, and and went through that, and that gave us a starting point. And then we went to the uh, archives at the visitor center in, in uh, at the Gettysburg battlefield, and uh, met a great historian there who gave us a lot of good information and good tips. And whatever we asked for, he would have it back on the desk for us in about five minutes. He just was amazing, and and we uh, really appreciated all his work. And we went from from the archives. Then we went out to the historical society and did a lot of work there. Uh, we were fortunate enough, we've been going there so often and did so many book signings that we know a lot of the bookstore owners, and we kind of picked their brain a little bit, and we also purchased a ton of maps, because none of them were the same, and and the maps, we've, we thought we had a good battlefield map or a good hospital map, and it turns out it wasn't very accurate, but it gave us a starting point, and then we just went from there, but we compared one map to the next, and uh, and then we physically went to it uh, to see it and make sure it was still there or get to the site where it used to be, and in many cases talked to people whose ancestors owned the house or the farm at the time of the battle, so... Um, very um, disjointed in some some ways. Uh, a real a real historian such as yourself would probably throw up your hands and say, "Why would you do it like that?" Uh, but it worked for us. Well, you you hit right on it that you follow the research where it takes you, and and mm-hmm. you you can make a plan, but you know no no plan survives contact with the enemy. Uh, exactly. As soon as you start start working, you you find out things you didn't expect. Yep. In, in that vein, what would you say was the most surprising thing that you came across? 
Oh, wow. There are a lot of surprising things. Uh, one, as I mentioned already, the, the uh, generosity of the people that, that we came into contact with. Um, as a matter of courtesy, I always wanted to ask first if I could take a photo of their house or their barn or whatever, because I wouldn't want somebody taking a picture of my house without mm-hmm. telling me why. And almost universally, we only had, I think, two cases where they asked us not not to go onto the property because they'd had so much vandalism, and I understood that. They had no, sure. no idea who I was, so I honored that and was able to get a photo from a, a long distance, uh, which worked. Um, but we, we would... We would ask them to if we could have a photo, take a photo of their house, and and, and told them why. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was almost like they were waiting for somebody to come and ask them for that. <laughs> they just couldn't tell us enough information. They couldn't treat us nicely enough. Uh, in many cases, a, a five-minute or what we thought would be a five-minute photo op. Uh, would take a couple hours because the owner would insist on taking us through the house and showing us where the amputations were done and and uh, who was in this room and, uh, and it just became almost like friends even though we had never met them before. In fact, one one uh, family asked us to stay for lunch because they were they had ordered a pizza and and uh, they said there's going to be plenty for all of us, so, <laughs> so they wanted us to stay for lunch. Uh, and that was this kind of thing we ran into is. Uh, surprising because I'd never encountered that before. We had a uh, at the Leitner farm. Uh, I asked the, the, I got there and a gentleman was working on some kind of a project, remodeling project uh, on his porch. Um, and I asked him again if I could take a photo and told him why. And he said, "Oh, you don't want a picture her looking like this." He says, "Wait till I get this stuff out of here." And he wouldn't even let me help him. I carried his table saw down to the yard to get it away from the photo and. And a couple stacks of lumber he took off there, so it took us about half an hour or so to get things all all ready to go. And then the picture took what thirty seconds, maybe. <laughs> and then we put it all back. He did let me help him put it back, but uh, he didn't want me to to uh, mess around taking it down off. So the big surprise again, I think, would be the people that that were so generous with their time. And that answers another question I had, which was about the photography. So you did the photography yourself for all these sites? Yes, it was either uh, either my wife or myself would have taken those photos. Did you ever have a case where you went to someone's house that you, you knew something about, and they said, oh, yes, this is, you know, Stonewall Jackson died in this very room, or something that you knew was not true? Uh, yeah, I think we did. We We had... In many cases, as I just said we had uh, really good stories told to us by the people that that uh, owned the place. We went out to the, for instance, we went to the David Stewart farm out on Fairfield Road, and of course, hit it at the worst possible time. It was some kind of a, uh, a music festival they were having that weekend, so we had to wait in line for about a half hour to get through the gate with all the campers. And as busy as they were, again, the generosity of the people, the owner of the campground, um, I guess we were kind of obvious we weren't campers, and, and uh, we just started talking. And I know how busy he must have been on that weekend. Sure. Um, he said his great-grandfather owned the Stewart Farm um, at the time of the battle, and he told me a, a, a very poignant story about a 15-year-old uh, soldier from Georgia uh, that had been brought to the farm there for treatment and uh, had, had been shot in the eye. His eye was gone. Mm-hmm. And 
he didn't survive, obviously, and he was buried in the orchard. And the man was very in, uh, enthusiastic about that. He said, my grandfather documented this in his diary, and it, it was a, I thought it was a very interesting story. You might like to, to use it. And I, I didn't want to tell him I couldn't use it just on his word. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So I, I did... You know, I, I, I told him how interesting the story was, and it really was. Mm-hmm. And I would like to have used it, but I, I didn't know how I could. And as luck would have it, uh, maybe the next visit or a visit or two after that uh, to the archives at, at the battlefield, we found the notes of a, uh, of a surgeon from New York who had been treating many of the Confederate soldiers after the retreat along Fairfield Road. And one of his stories that he had, he had encountered a young boy uh, he said there was a piece of linen cloth across his face. Uh, when he took the cloth off, he saw that both his eyes were gone. And right away, the, you know, the bells went off. And uh, he treated this young man, and, and of course he didn't survive, he said, and he was buried. And the only differential in, uh, in the two stories was which farm was it on. And the two farms are side by side, so we have a New York surgeon trying to remember which farm it was, which I can see very easily, he could have gotten them confused. And uh, the stories were so similar and so unusual uh, that I kind of took a little bit of uh, artistic liberty there and and did use it in there because I think, I'm pretty sure that was a documentation there. We had two sources that that pretty much agreed with what happened. It was just a matter of, was it a quarter mile down the road from where he thought it was? Wow, that's... uh... It's what it's all about when you can triangulate, when you can get those multiple yes. confirming sources. It's a great thing. Yes. Uh, and especially when you can confirm a, a family story that people really want to believe and have been telling everyone their whole lives. Uh, mm-hmm. it, 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 it's unfortunate if you find out it's not the case, but this is as much different. Right. Well, and I've run into some of those as well. <laughs> but yeah. for the most part, uh, uh, we're generally able to document these things. Well, this um, uh, again, the, the, the photographs bring these places to life, uh, and, and for me, the experience of looking at them and, and again saying, I've, "I've been there. I know that place. I've walked by that place," uh, really made this uh, a great uh, shot in the arm. Uh, I'm thinking about the pandemic, obviously, uh, for for somebody who came, as we all are, for someone who's not able to travel to be able to see this. Uh, mm-hmm. I want to ask some more questions about, about specific places and, and uh, how they are doing today. We'll do that when we come back. We'll take another short break. We're talking today with James Gindelsberger. He is the author of Bullets and Bandages, the Aid Stations and Field Hospitals at Gettysburg. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand, all from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. If you think you've seen online TV before, 
Let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with James Gindelsberger, author of Bullets and Bandages, The Aid Stations and Field Hospitals at Gettysburg. It is a marvelous marvelously attractive guidebook to the uh, literally hundreds of places that that qualify as a field hospital, places where wounded soldiers were treated. Uh, And looking through this book is is like walking through the town of Gettysburg, through the battlefield scenes past familiar farms, the Kodori farm, uh, the Trossel Farm, Rose Farm, but then also these much more obscure places out uh, uh, far behind the lines. As Jim, as you said at the beginning, they wanted to set up field hospitals, not under fire, obviously, if they could help it. Uh, now, most of these are not part of the national park, uh, right. and as you so. Obviously, you pointed out how you were careful and, and, and courteous to, to approach the owners if you want to take a picture. Um, listeners, uh, you would, you and I would do the same thing. We wouldn't go walking in someone's front yard without asking them. Uh, you did. There are one or two places in the book where you have a photograph and a story of a house, but instead of a numbered uh, entry that keys to a map location, there's just an X. Indicating the author or indicating the owner was happy to be photographed and tell the story, but didn't want their location publicized. Right? Uh, did, were you surprised it didn't happen more often? Is there a problem? Yes, with- I was actually. Um, particularly in this day and age, you just don't want mm-hmm. you know people tramping all over your front yard and uh, looking in your windows and so on. So yes, I, I was had to be uh, had to admit that I. It, uh, it was surprising that we only had one or two that did that. Yeah, for the others, uh, listeners, if you have this book, it has the uh, GPS coordinates of each site, so you can right. absolutely be sure not just the street address, but if they're out in the countryside and there's no no street there, you've you've got that. Um, well, I, I the first thing I did when I started looking at this book was turn to the index. And uh, see if the the house of my my friend Gabor Borat was in here. Uh, a lot of listeners will know Gabor is uh, the creator of the Civil War Institute at Gettysburg College, where he was a professor for many years, 
and he's been a guest on the show. Uh, I've written many important books about the Civil War and Abraham Lincoln. And uh, he and his family live in the, the, the farm by the Ford. And I turned yes. to the index. Is farm by the Ford in here? Oh, it's not in here. Gabor, Gabor Borat in here? No, not in the index. Uh, but it turns out, of course, his, his place is in here under the name of the owner at the time of the, of the war. Uh, right. So again, it was for me. It was old home week. To say, oh yeah, I I know that guy, um, and and so it's a roundabout way of asking. Do you have a favorite place that you wrote about in this book? I I, I have several favorites, uh, but I do think I have, have one that does kind of stand out. One one for the story of it. And two, mm-hmm. because uh, one of the battlefield guides, who's a, a good friend of mine, uh, turns out uh, these are, were his ancestors. So he mm-hmm. kind of tipped me off of, uh, as to some of the information that, that I was looking for and, and was very helpful. And that was the Jacob Kime farm out on Old Harrisburg Road. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Uh, it's right beside the New Gettysburg High School. Okay. Uh, it's mm-hmm. not there anymore. It's just the fields. Uh, but the... the the farm, uh, the farm itself wasn't wasn't the story. It was one of the people that was treated there. Uh, the Kime family actually left the farm the day of the battle after they were warned by some Confederate officers that, that they weren't going to be safe if they stayed there. And uh, when they got back uh, that night, they came back, or Jacob came back that night. The rest of the family came back a few days later, but. Uh, the farm was was just devastated at that point. The, the cattle had all been butchered already, and the fences were torn down, and the crops were all trampled down, as you can imagine. Um, and he spent the night in his own cellar, and he said he could hear the the screams and the cries of the wounded men upstairs, uh, crying out for for their mothers or for pain medicine or something to to mm. deaden the uh, the pain of, of what they were going through. And as it turned out, there were 11 burials on the farm, and only three of those were identified. And one of those who was one of the three was a, a man named uh, William McLeod, a lieutenant colonel uh, from a Georgia regiment, uh, was buried in the orchard uh, by his own servant he had brought with him, uh, Moses. And uh, about two years after the war was over, uh, Moses and uh, Colonel McLeod's brother-in-law, John, came back to Gettysburg to reclaim the body to take it back to be buried again in the family cemetery, um, which was a good idea. But when they got back, and this kind of shows you how this affects families and and particularly mothers, uh, McLeod's mother said, we're not going to bury him. He's been alone in the grave for two years, and I'm never going to let him be alone again. So she refused to let anybody bury him until another family member died so they could be buried together. And it took seven years for, for another family member to die. So for seven years, um, his body was in, of course, was in a casket, but was in the parlor of, the, of their home in Georgia until uh, the next family member died. And as ironically, ironically, it was his brother-in-law that had brought him back from Gettysburg. But that that story and, it, and its poignancy mm-hmm. just kind of hit home with me for some reason, and uh, I, I always I always use that in, in my talks uh, as one of the stories of how this uh, and every war uh, affects families and not just 
the, the people that do the fighting. And, and it just kind of stuck with me. And I, I kind of like that. And again, it may be because I, I know uh, the ancestor so well who whose uh, grandfather was the owner of the farm at the time. But, but the story itself, I think, just kind of jumps out at you. Yeah, that, that is a, a really uh, poignant story. And uh, I'm immediately jumping ahead thinking about metaphors that the South, uh, unable to release itself from its own history of the Civil War, like uh, having a body in the parlor, yeah, uh, what was yeah. the the story arose for Emily? Is, is that a is that a Faulkner story? Um, oh yes, yes, yeah, I forgot uh, about that. Yeah, it, it kind of the same idea here. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, can't let go of the dead body. Uh, well, yep. uh, let me ask uh, a different question about preservation, since these places are not on the uh, they're not on the national park grounds for the most part. There are more than a few sites where you tell a, a very interesting story about what happened at that location in the Civil War. And then you've got a photograph of a convenience store or a gas station, which mm, is what's yeah. on the site today. Um, it, it, what's the status of preservation of these places in general? Well, for the most part, not too bad. Uh, there are a few gas stations and convenience stores, as you mentioned, but uh, surprisingly, um, many of them look almost identical to what they would have looked like in, in 1863. So the, um, the preservation uh, is, is very good, and, and uh, that's a very uh, touchy subject with me because my wife and I are both preservation nuts and not that we're tree huggers, but we, we feel very uh, strongly about losing these things because once they're gone, they're gone. And uh, the Leesburg the area, fortunately, is is pretty well preserved uh, in town particularly but then as you get further out of course and some of the farms are no longer there but again for the most part uh, it's not bad you know it, it is uh well, certainly that is true that, that the gettysburg community adams county has largely uh, been smart enough to recognize the goose that lays the golden egg that uh, exactly that's what it, it is it, the, the, I haven't gone to Gettysburg every year for, for many, many years because of casinos or uh, yes. a nice four-lane highway. I can get that in a lot of places. I go there because it's the Battle, battle of Gettysburg, yep. and if you don't preserve exactly. it, uh, I'm not going. So um, you mentioned briefly when we were talking about treatment, you mentioned the Letterman system offhand, and while most of our listeners will recognize that uh, – Jonathan Letterman is not the most well-known Civil War name, and Camp Letterman, uh, named for him where so many uh, the wounded were cared for, is in fact uh, covered with a strip mall today, I believe. It's a shopping center, uh, right? Shopping center. Uh, so, but tell us a bit about about uh, Camp Letterman. Uh, Camp Letterman. Um it was the main general hospital. Uh, everything was every everybody was brought to that at, at one point toward the end of the uh, at the end of the time that there were only two or three hospitals left open, and then they were all brought to Camp Letterman, uh, treated both Union and Confederate. It was just like its own little tent city. Uh, had a cemetery there because obviously many of them did not survive. Um, had a, a, Volunteer nurses, volunteer 
physicians uh, because many of the doctors had gone with the with the armies because they expected more fighting, and they would be needed. Uh, so, uh, uh, unfortunately, is is tragically again lost to history because uh, we just didn't preserve the way we should have. Now the. The mention of, of this reminds me that the, the first chapter of your book talks about the uh, the care that was given, uh, things we talked about earlier uh, in, in the first segment, how how the triage was performed, what kind of treatment were given. Uh, part of what makes this book so useful is it's if one knows nothing about Civil War medicine, it's a great introduction, and then you've got these specific locations. Um, and then I, I want to get back to the book physically one more time. The, it's on glossy... Sure. Uh, paper, so it's heavy, but just nicely produced. And I see the publisher is Blair out of Durham, North Carolina, right. which I'm not familiar with. Um, how did you connect to this publisher? What else did they do? Well, I have an agent who really did all the legwork on that, but uh, Blair now is is a combination of uh, what was Blair Publishing in Winston-Salem. That was our, uh, our earlier publisher. Uh, that our agent had found, and, and they had done three of our books, and then they merged with Carolina Wren in uh, Durham, and mm-hmm. merged and kept the Blair name, but they didn't go by Blair Publishing anymore. They just moved go by by Blair. Uh, but mm-hmm. they're a small publisher. Um, I don't know how many books they do a year, but it, uh, they're not like uh, some of these huge publishing houses. But um, I've been pleased with them. Um, they, they they do a, an excellent job with marketing. They good, do a good job with uh, editing. Um, I, I'm very pleased with them. Well, the the, I mean, the book came to my attention through uh, the publicist for Blair, and sometimes, and I do hear from a, a fair number of people who want their books. Uh, talked about, and and more often than not, I will have to say, well, that's not really what we do on the show. The book might be historical fiction, or it just might be pop history that doesn't tell us anything new uh, that that listeners are already familiar with, and and, uh, so when I get something from, uh, hear from a publisher I've never heard of, I think, oh, I tend to be skeptical, but this, uh, (laughs) yeah, it, it, it was a red red flag when you've not heard of them and there are some small publishers listeners may be aware of that are um that publish uh really bad books uh books that that are are distortions of history so so one has to be careful uh but this is not one um i i was pleasantly surprised when it arrived and enjoyed reading it and enjoyed traveling through the streets and, and lanes of Gettysburg and around and uh, seeing the pictures, reading the stories. I'm anxious to get back there with this in hand and look at these places again. Um, I, I wish we had more time. We're at the end of our hour already. Time has flown by. Uh, but <laughs> listeners, if, if you have any interest in Gettysburg at all and you think you know the place, uh, you need to get a copy of Bullets and Bandages, The Aid Stations and Field Hospitals at Gettysburg by James Gindelsberger, uh, and with full credit to Suzanne, his wife, who uh, made this possible. Uh, Jim, I, I enjoyed the book and enjoyed talking to you. Thanks so much for being on Civil War Talk Radio. Well, thank you for having me. I enjoyed it, too. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. 
Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.